Welcome. This is Bob Hers, and welcome to Talk About Poetry. I'm editor of Nine Mile Magazine, also publisher of the W.D. Hofstadt & Sons Small Press, where we've published a number of interesting and I think wonderful poets, Mike Burkhardt, David St. John, Jim Cervantes, and others. Uh, we've now started Talk About Poetry, a great opportunity to sit with some friends who are also poets and talk about poems that we like that engage us, that uh, excite our admiration, or that, frankly, annoy us in some ways, uh, but bring us to a point of interest one way or the other about them. Uh, our three friends today are just wonderful people. I'm going to ask each one to identify themselves and introduce themselves. Georgia. Hi, Bob. Georgia Popoff. I'm a poet living and working in Syracuse, New York. My primary function in life is to uh, be the workshops coordinator at the Downtown Writers' Center and be on the faculty with my colleague to my left, Phil. I have three books of poetry, and I have one book out that is uh, for teachers in K-12 education to integrate poetry in a more organic and fruitful manner. I'm Phil Memmer. I'm the director of the Downtown Writers' Center at the Syracuse YMCA. Uh, and the author of four collections of poems, most recently, The Storehouses of the Snow, Psalms, Parables, and Dreams. And I'm Steve Cousisto. I'm the author of two books of poems, Only Bread, Only Light, and uh, most recently, last year, uh, Letters to Borges, both available from Copper Canyon Press. And I live in DeWitt. Ha, wonderful. Well, the poem we're going to be talking about is Garden of Flesh, Garden of Stone by Bridget Pegeen Kelly. And Phil, you brought her forward to us. You want to read the poem and I tell us why? I'd be delighted to, yes. And I'm going to uh, just read the poem first and then uh, start our discussion afterward. Garden of flesh, garden of stone. The little white throat has his head in the boy's ear. Maybe he has found some seed in it. Or maybe he is telling the boy a secret, some sweet nothing. Or maybe he has mistaken the rimmed flesh, taut and sweet as the skin of a fig, for his bathing dish, and is about to dive through the pale sky reflected in it, lengths of blue, lengths of gray, yards and yards of queried white. And the boy, who is made of stone, who has stood still for a long time, pissing in the stone basin, seems this morning in the peculiar light to be leaning his large head, barely balanced on a narrow neck, toward the sparrow, as if he likes the soft sewing motion of the beak within his ear, the delicate morse of the white throat, a bird as plain as dust, but swift-witted and winged, and the possessor of the saddest of all calls, five slow notes that bring to mind a whole garden of fruit trees in winter, trunk after scarred trunk, the mist stiff in the branches, and the sound of single drops of water striking the charred ground, as desolate as the sound of the boy's fountain dripping and dripping into the drained basin long after the water has been shut off. Today the basin is full. The boy stands above it, one hand on his hip, as if he were a gunslinger, the other in front, guiding the narrow stream of water up and out in a spinning arc that changes color in the light and tosses, when it hits the flat surface of the water, a handful of silver seed up. This seems to be the source of the boy's smile. This and some teasing riddle the bird has dropped in the boy's ear that the boy turns over and over. Now the bird hops to the boy's shoulder, 
when he whistles, as he will in a moment, his chest will puff out, and the patch of feathers at his throat will echo the pouched whiteness of the boy's belly. A purse of stone crossed by roses, tall roses long overgrown, the dark blooms lapping and lapping at the boy's flesh, and then, one by one, diving slowly sideways, distracted by their own swooning reflections in the water. The boy is roughly fashioned, the chisel marks still visible, mm. but this belly the flowers fall for is impossibly beautiful. The sun has bleached it, and the wind has buffed it, until it is a perfect rind of fruit, or the perfect curve of the moon on nights when it is full and hangs over the neglected trees behind the boy, the pocked stone matching the pallor of the boy's skin, white gone dusky, shallow water in a shallow basin, and the pale hands, too, that move over and under as they wash themselves in it, the water sighing as it falls. Five notes, five slow notes. This is the song of the white throat. Five notes so high and sad, and so like a boy's whistle, they press on a spot deep in the throat, deep where the cords band the bone and the breath, and the boy made of stone shivers. The boy looks up. Why has he never heard this song before? He likes the strangeness of it. He likes the ghostly trees that rise up around him like the remnant of a garden he once stood in but has forgotten, a garden in which there was no fountain. He likes the charred smell of wet dirt and the mist that slides across the blackened branches in strands as slow and milky as the horned snails that come out at dusk and drag their silver trails down the walk. He likes his shaking body and the taste of old fruit on his tongue. But abruptly, the song stops. The trees step back. Now the bird is all business. The bird snaps his beak as he moves brusquely up and down the boy's long arm, measuring it as if it were a length of cloth, smoothed and ready for cutting. The bird snaps. And the boy who is made of stone, who is crudely fashioned but still lovely, slowly, slowly shifts his weight from his back foot to his front, which unbalances his narrow shoulders and makes the stream of water arced like a bow, arrowless but ready, thin to a thread, and the water in the basin goes slack. The boy wants the bird to stop. He wants the bird to come back and croon in his ear like the lover he has never had, or he wants the white throat to go for good. He will not stand for this cutting. Why should he? Doesn't the bird know of the pact? The privilege the boy was granted when the one with somewhat clumsy hands chose to make him not of wood or of gold or of pale washed flesh, but of stone. No cloth would ever darken his body with shadow. No shadow would grow from his feet and loop its noose around him the way it does those other boys, the ones behind the wall, who with rocks and shrill shouts bring down bird after singing bird. He traded that pleasure for this, to stand harmless and never move, to never move and never be dressed, as even this white throat is, in his own shroud. Why did he listen to the bird's song? What is this weight of stone in his belly? Where is the one with heavy hands? How will he call him? And what, when he raises his small voice for the first time, will that voice sound like? Hmm. Gosh. So, um, Bridget Pegeen Kelly is 
uh, I think a really remarkable poet. She's the author of three books of poems. Um, she writes and publishes very, very slowly, which uh, is a source of some distress for her enormous fans like me, <laughs> uh, who would prefer a book every year from her. But that's not that's not how she you operates. An enormous number of fans. Yes, that too. <laughs> yes, yes. You exactly. don't look so bad. <laughs> <laughs> it could be worse. Um, her first book, uh, To the Place of Trumpet, won the Yale Younger Poets Prize. Uh, her second, which this poem is from, Song, uh, won the Lamont Series Prize uh, from the Academy of American Poets. Uh, her third book, The Orchard, uh, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Um, and I am assuming that her fourth book will be greeted by similar fanfare when we finally have the opportunity to see it some day, who knows how many years from now. Um, but a completely remarkable poet, and uh, a, really a unique poet. And one of the reasons I, I chose uh, to bring in one of her poems, not only because she's really one of my favorites, but also that there just aren't a ton of, uh, uh, not a ton of recordings of her work out there, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, and I, had, I could not find a single recording of this one out there. And it's, it's one of my favorite poems by her, and I just wanted to have a chance to hear it out loud and and have it somewhere out loud where mm -hmm. people would be able to find it. Um, I also thought it would be fun since the, the couple of the poems we've chosen for this series were, were briefer uh, poems to have something a little longer and just, just to hear um, a different sort of rhythm and a different, um, a very different approach, a much more narrative approach in this case. Um, this particular poem, I, I, you know, in, I like for any number of reasons. Um, like a lot of Bridget Kelly's uh, work, it has this very particular, relentless rhythm that builds and builds and builds as you go through the piece. And... Um, like a fountain itself. Very much mm -hmm. so. Very much so. And um, I had the, I've had the opportunity to hear Bridget Kelly read a few times over the years. Um, and the, the first time I heard her read uh, was shortly after this book, Song, came out. And it was one of the most singular experiences I've ever had in in uh, in poetry. Um, it, it sounds like the sort of hyperbole that you um, you think of things like, oh, the first time the Rite of Spring was performed, people rioted in the streets and things like that. P people left the left the room crying about four poems in. It was it, the atmosphere was actually that intense, and um, and she did nothing particular to create that. It was just the work and the rhythms of the work and the subject matter of the work and, and so on. Um, it was really a magical evening. And um, I, with this one, I, I love so much how we go from this very intricate description of the boy, uh, the statue boy and the bird, and how gradually that comes to life. Um, and as it comes to life, how much that boy becomes like us um, and, and how even though he's a stone statue, his his mortality and his relationship with his creator ends up being the the real central focus of this. As this bird keeps singing to him and then stops singing to him, um, that 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 little drama that plays out in the poem, I just find fascinating. And well, and it's it's really um, terrifically beautiful because she does the opposite of Ovid, whose metamorphosis is really one of the foundational you know, books mm -hmm. in Western literary tradition, right, where Ovid is telling these stories about um, human beings punished by the gods and who are transformed into um, 
inanimate objects or animals and yes. thereby lose their voices. Yep, our statue here is and, punished by becoming us. Right, and, yeah. and I've always thought, wouldn't it be interesting to do the anti-Ovidian and bring something back, mm -hmm. right? And that's what she's doing there, which is um, a signature of the power uh, and wonder of poetic imagination. Yes. You know. I, th I think, too, the fact, I'm, I'm glad you chose this poem as well, that there's uh, so many big philosophical moments and so many immediate life moments, but I think having a longer poem, the, the long poem lost its, uh, its popularity for a while, and it seems that uh, it's such a different process. Like when I mm -hmm. started writing some long poems, which I had never done, and, and have been working on for the last few years, there's something really different for the poet that happens as well as the reader. And Bridget never loses us in this, I don't believe. She keeps, because of that momentum, like the little engine that could all the way through, you want to know what happens. You want to, you, you want to follow her and you want, the, the way she plays between, uh, in, a, in a Pinocchio way, I want to be a real boy, you know, or I, there, there are the real boys implied. But the fact that she could sustain it for going on three pages, it's more than two and a half pages, in the, or just about two and a half pages in the book, and that each step is just a little wider perspective. The peripheral vision, by honing in on the immediate, actually becomes wider with each detail, with each moment that she shows us, and with each speculation of the boy who is the statue. As he really, he can't move, but he can certainly observe and participate in the world around him. And I just, it's stunning that a, a poem can be that good and that long. <laughs> <laughs> you know, to put it easily, uh -oh. <laughs> simply. <laughs> Quick, don't, don't tell Wordsworth. <laughs> um, the plot of the poem fascinates me. Mm -hmm. So we start out with the description of the boy as a statue, and we learn that he's not actually all that perfect, although there's perfect parts to him. You know, the belly is like the moon. The, you know, and, and, and he's whistled into life, at least partway into life, by the bird, mm -hmm. which then turns the whistle uh, from whistling to snapping against him so that it becomes sort of intolerable. And I'm, I'm working back and forth trying to figure out, I mean, this bird seems to be a magical, but also uh, a, a, a bit of a torturer uh, at sure. the same time. Or the, maybe we're to understand that that is simply the principle of life, that, that being, being whistled into our lives, uh, we're also whistled into pain, longing, and frustration. Uh, and so that may be part of what I'm seeing here. If I'm angels are sinister. What our angels are, if I'm if I'm understanding the plot of the poem uh, correctly, mm -hmm. and then we end up with the boy wanting the bird to either go away, come back, just make up your mind, please, and then wondering what it's like to be more fully human, right? Trapped now in this sort of purgatory between uh, the paradise where he was and the maybe the paradise he's yet to go to. Yeah, let, me, let me live in, in the midst of this beautiful song you were singing me, or, or let me not live, but don't keep me hanging in this place where I'm awake, but I'm not experiencing the beauty you were giving me a moment ago. Yeah, is it yeah. not quite starting? I mean, is that what we're to understand? Because the five notes are like a boy's whistle mm -hmm. also, right? So, but it's somehow not quite catching. Is that, the, is that what we're to, to, to grasp there? 
Well, the, the bird, you know, the bird sings to his song and the boy wakes up and, you know, really becomes no longer a statue but an actual character in the poem who's thinking and in, enjoying. Um, and, uh, but then when the bird stops singing, we have this great little moment where he, um, now the bird is all business. The bird snaps his beak as he moves brusquely up and down the boy's long arm, measuring it as if it were a length of cloth, smooth and ready for cutting, which is then followed later in the poem by, by a lot of shroud imagery. And, and I tie those two together, you know, at least in my head, those two things become tied together, um, which is, I think, maybe not completely overt here, but it's the kind of work the poem invites you to do. You know, it, there's lots of repetition of images and phrases. Um, it's interesting that the boy's consciousness, as revealed in the poem, is a metonymy for our consciousness mm -hmm. as readers, which is to, metonymy is one of those fancy literary critical words, but it means that, that it's a miniature representation of a larger, uh, a larger thing. So the boy's consciousness is a miniaturized representation of all of us who are striving in the mortal flesh Yes. to glean meaning and joy in the midst of nature, which both does and does not care about us. Mm -hmm. right. uh, Basho, the great 16th century Japanese poet, wrote, Ah, the pine tree, another thing that will never be my friend. And, <laughs> you know, and so this bird, on the one hand, is the romantic image of the gift of music from nature, which Keats also adored in his Ode to a Nightingale, yeah. right? And in Keats' Ode to a Nightingale, he laments, as the narrator, uh, that he wishes this bird would keep it up, mm -hmm. because when it stops, he's left with his own sad, dark, mortal heart. So this is a very Keatsian uh, kind of situation revealed in the poem. And yet, at the same time, this boy is us and is not us. Um, he is also about the roll of the dice that Bridget Kelly, as a poet, has made to see what she can say about uh, how imagination helps us through mm -hmm. um, this painful awareness that nature is not enough and that what we say about art is not enough, right? I mean, there's so much going on in the poem. Well, the boy is never actualized, though. No, I mean he never really he, he acquires a consciousness, correct? But yeah. without without the human ability to move or to be anything mm -hmm. other than a statue. Yeah, well, it ain't Disney. <laughs> it ain't beanbag. It ain't. It's true. <laughs> it's interesting to me that you know when the, when the boy, you know when his anger starts to come out, you know through the voice of our narrator, he starts asking all these questions toward the end of the program, uh, to the end of the poem, um, that the the existence as a stone statue without consciousness is a privilege. You know that, um, and that that was the pact when he was when he was made of stone by someone with clumsy hands and not made of flesh, that he didn't have to put up with all this, you know, and that he's he's been betrayed in a way, you know, by this loveliness from the bird. Um, it's a very complicated um, and somewhat scary idea, I like that. And is the shroud then the promise, or the or the non-promise, or the faux promise, or is it? Well, it's it's part of what he was supposed to not have to deal with. 
you know, the, the boys and even the bird who's singing to him, you know, they, they're wrapped in their shrouds. Their flesh is their shroud. You know, they they are going to end. He's not supposed to. He's a stone statue. He, he this is not his problem, um, or shouldn't be his problem. But now it's been made at least temporarily to be his problem. Um, you know that he he's been woken up. He he wasn't supposed to wake up. He was supposed to be stone. But now. Uh, now he has to experience what we experience. It's sort of an anti-Yates, right? One side of nature I shall never take. <laughs> right? but, but here we're taking. Um, the, the, um, the stuff I have read on Ms. Kelly uh, is pretty interesting. That One of her uh, critics says that her self-imposed task is to, quote, investigate why the world is so protean, pitching our human desire to empirically know a thing against the very real and in the world of Kelly's poems and otherworldly resistance to so-called rational thinking. Mm -hmm. Interesting thought. Uh, this is a great place to end the discussion on this poem. Thank you all. What a wonderful poem. A great reading. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thanks, Beth.